The following program contains adult content, violence, and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Welcome to Your Fantasy. You're having sex every day with two and three people. Every day, every day, every day. A different girl, maybe sometimes twice, but never more than three. There was no care, no interest, no, no, no emotion, no nothing, no intimacy. It was just, it was an act. And, and it, it damaged me. The club was singularly controlled 100% by Steve Banerjee. So he was this massive hub of a, of, a, of a bicycle wheel where all these spokes, all you had to do was just get close to another spoke and you'd know exactly what's coming out of him. Nick basically proposed to Steve that he would have a road show in perpetuity. And Banerjee didn't know what perpetuity meant. And Nick wrote on a napkin, I have the right to take Chippendales uh, on the road and I own this in perpetuity. And Banerjee signed it. So one day last fall, I met up with this guy named Hadari Sababu. We went to this pizza place in L.A. It was right at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. And we got to talking about his years as a Chippendales dancer. Back then, it was like super huge. So many famous people came, you know, girls from the soap operas, you know, the Rams cheerleaders, the Playboy bunnies. I'm like, whoa, this thing is crazy. It was the mid-80s at the height of Chippendales fame. And Hadari loved partying with the bunnies and the cheerleaders. But during the day, he spent his time hanging around the office with Steve Banerjee. You know, most of the guys that dance, they kind of dance. He'd find them on a beach, hanging out, or in the gym, pumping weights. And they they didn't know a lot. But I had been to college and all that, and and, I had other aspirations. You know, I used to go there during the day just to hang out because I had nothing else to do. Yeah. You know, we would talk and... And he liked me. So he, he said, look, well, you know, just just kind of hang out and I'll show you how to negotiate deals. I'll show you the business side. Hadari would answer phones, file paperwork, but he was also watching Banerjee really closely. The way he'd haggle with vendors, the way he marketed the brand. I remember one time he, uh, he in order to get more publicity, he called a bunch of churches in the area. And he said, ah, oh, yeah, we heard that there's a show down there. These guys are getting naked. And uh, these church ladies, oh, my God. And they came, and, and then he would call the news channel. I heard that there's going to be a bunch of church ladies picketing outside of Chippendales. And all the news cameras are there, and all the church ladies are there. And they're picketing, no more naked guys, no more naked guys. Millions of dollars worth of free publicity. And I did this when I opened my club. I did the exact same thing. I copied him. Hadari's a true entrepreneur. The reason we were in this pizza joint in the first place is because it's where he takes his meetings these days. It's just up the block from the umbrella stand that serves as the headquarters for his own company, LA Hood Life Tours. For 75 bucks, you can get a three-hour tour of Compton in South Central LA. There's Easy es house. That's where Tupac shot the video for To Live and Die in LA. Hadari's been running the tours for about 10 years. Before that, he did eight years in prison for drug dealing, which he says he was also very good at, until he got busted. And before that, he ran the strip club he mentioned a second ago. I started my own show. It was uh, Lady Killers and Bad Boys. 
Good title. Yeah, yeah. So it was all black male review. Hadari seemed to like spending time with Banerjee at Chippendales, but there was one thing that was tough for him to look past. I just happened to be the only black guy that worked there. He was the one black dancer in the cast. Later on, after he'd left Chippendales, Hadari figured he could start his own show, having spent three full years studying Banerjee's business moves. But Lady Killers, he decided, would be by and for black people. Steve went to the beach to get his guys. We went to outside of the jail to did get you ours. Really? Yeah. Is that what you did? We would literally get guys that had just did like five, ten years. They come out, they swole, they don't have a job. Right. They don't, how the hell are they going to make some money? It's like, bro, bro, let me show you. You could actually do this. And they they come and, oh, man, shit, man. They come and, and they they be like, whoa, I'm with it. I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. I tried to mold these guys in, into uh, black Chippendale yeah. dancers. It didn't work. What did work, though, was the same marketing trick that he'd seen Banerjee use to get people to come to his club. I called all the news channels and I called all these Baptist churches and I told them, oh, I heard it was going to be some naked guys. And it worked to perfection. And we got so much free publicity. That trick's like Marketing 101 in the Steve Banerjee School of Business. It's the intro class right before Arson 202. Banerjee really did try to burn down at least two of his competitors. First, there was a club called Moody's Disco in 1979, then the Red Onion in 84. Neither attempt was successful, if that's the right word for an attempted arson. But the guy definitely had some issues with competition. You might think Banerjee would have chilled out as the business became more established and mainstream and as Steve himself became incredibly wealthy. But instead, the opposite happened. The bigger Chippendales got, the more paranoid Steve became. Part of it was the growing feeling that Nick DeNoia was becoming the face of Chippendales. Part of it was that as Chippendales got bigger, there was more competition popping up, other clubs and knockoff merchandise. And part of it was just, that's just who Steve was. Almost everyone I talked to mentioned that he was a paranoid person and that his paranoia grew and grew as he became wealthier and more powerful. So for this episode, we're heading back to L.A., where Banerjee is now running the show without Nick, and where we see the two sides of his personality coming out in full force. And there's no one who experienced these two sides of Steve more intensely than Hadari. When he was really starting to go through this megalomaniac thing, I was kind of in on the beginning of that. He's, ah, I got to get rid of this guy. I want him to come up missing because he's fucking up my business. I'm like, look, dude, I'm not got to do that. I don't want to get involved in that. I'm Natalia Petrozella. This is Welcome to Your Fantasy, Episode 4, Three Men and a Lawsuit. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. We're going to pick up Hadari's story later. But there's another guy I want you to meet. A law student named Don Gibson. He's about as far from a Chippendales dancer as you can get. 
but he plays an important role in the history of the club and in the story of Steve Banerjee's relationship to the law. Okay, so let's start from kind of who you were. Who were you in the 1980s? I was a cool guy. I still am. Good. <laughs> this is not this is not officially on tape yet, right? Actually, we are rolling, so oh, you, know, we you are, are, okay, you are well, record, let me get on the record well, as a cool guy. <laughs> Don's a law professor at Arizona State University, where he teaches things like sports law and the history of Major League Baseball. But back in 1982, he was a second-year law student at UCLA. I had... You know, images of Perry Mason and people like that who were characters on television who always seemed to have a great deal of uh, success helping people overcome circumstances that they might not have otherwise been able to overcome. Don has the perfect disposition for an attorney. He's thoughtful and measured. And he's the kind of guy who's always stood up for what's right, even if it made him unpopular. I mean, I remember, you know, in French class in seventh grade telling Professor Greenberg, that so-and-so is cheating on the test because I didn't think cheating was appropriate. (laughs) It wasn't a smart thing to do because he challenged me to a fight in the yard and we went out and we boxed it out. Um, But I've always been committed to, you know, doing the right thing and helping others understand the importance of standing up for what's right. I can relate. I also used to rat out the cheaters. Back in his law school days, Don lived near Chippendales. And oftentimes I would, you know, be on the bus uh, traveling past the club and see long lines. And then they were very aggressive with their advertising and their promotion. So everyone in Los Angeles knew about Chippendales, the nightclub. Like most grad students, Don didn't go out that much. But one September night, he and one of his buddies from law school, a guy named Barry, decided to check out Chippendales. We waited in line. And as we got to the uh, entrance, the bouncer asked us for our IDs. And I pulled out my California ID and Barry pulled out his driver's license and and he said, no, I mean your membership ID. And he said, membership? I said, we had no idea that a membership was required. And he said, oh no, you need to have a membership ID in order to gain entrance. So the bouncer points them to a building down the block. That's where you have to go and you go there on Monday through Friday between 10 and 4, I think is what he said. He said it's several hundred dollars, but we weren't going to spend several hundred dollars on a membership. So we just dropped it and we left. Don's a student. He's not about to spend what little money he has to join a private club he's never even been to. So he leaves and forgets the whole thing. He gets back to studying labor law and criminal procedure. But then a month or so later, he runs into Barry on campus and asks him what he got up to over the weekend. He says, oh, I went to Chippendale Saturday night. I said, really? I said, you bought a membership? And he said, no. He said, they let me in. They didn't ask me anything about a membership. Um, And Barry, by the way, is is Caucasian. And that's when the red flag went up for me. So I started inquiring and asking other law students if they had any experience with trying to gain entrance to Chippendales. And every single person I asked who was a person of color said they were asked for a membership. And that's when I knew something was, was awry, something that was going on that was not in compliance with the law. This is the guy who was willing to get beat up after school in order to stop the injustice of a fellow seventh grader cheating on a French test. He is not going to let this one slide. But Don also knows he needs hard evidence if he wants to build a case. So he asked a couple of white classmates, Bennett and Greg, to help him out with this sting operation. So we hatched a plan, the three of us. We decided that we would go down to Chippendales together, that I would dress 
up compared to them and we would try to gain entrance to the club and see what happened but we would have to do it by going in separately so i didn't run into the barrier issue where both of us were rejected because they came in with me so one night in late october don bennett and greg meet at don's apartment they head over to chippendales a little after 10. bennett and greg get in line first dressed in khakis and button downs don stands a few feet behind them sporting a designer jacket and newly pressed slacks no one could accuse him of looking too casual He watches as they pay the $4 cover charge, and the bouncer stamps their hands, and in they go, into the club, no problem. But when Don gets to the front of the line... The bouncer gave me the same statements that had been previously given me, that you need to have a membership ID. And I said, okay, and I walked away. A few minutes later, Bennett and Greg joined him at a designated meeting spot. And they were incensed. I mean, incensed. I mean, they couldn't believe that, you know, this kind of... Conduct could be occurring in a city like Los Angeles. Were you surprised? Well, nothing surprised me because I had experienced racism throughout, you know, my life. So nothing surprised me. I was just surprised that it was, you know, so bold. So the three of them get back in line, this time all together. And when they reach the bouncer... Ben and Greg pointed to me and said, well, he was denied admission because he was black. And the doorman looked at me and he said, no, he didn't. I rejected him because he didn't have a membership ID, a membership card. And they looked at him and they put their hands out and they said, neither did we. And the significance of that was that they had their hands stamped, proving that they had admission to the club. It was like, my goodness, you know, you can tell he was caught in a lie. So now Don, the budding lawyer, has his evidence. The next step is to file a discrimination complaint with a couple of different agencies, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing and the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board. One of the in-house representatives told me that This was incredible because they had received many complaints from African-Americans and other minorities about Chippendales and concerns about a discriminatory admissions practice over the years, but no one had actually done what we had done and compiled this kind of documentary evidence that they could use to advance the the process. Wow. How did that make you feel? Oh, well, it validated that I I, I did the right thing by going to law school. Fair warning, what you're about to hear is not sexy, but it is important to the story. The Alcoholic Beverage Control Board is known as the ABC. The ABC controls liquor licensing in LA. So if a business violates the liquor laws, overcrowding, serving minors, discrimination, the ABC can hear a case against them. And the more complaints a club gets, the more likely they are not to just get fined, but to have their liquor license revoked, a disaster for any nightclub. Don's case was definitely not Chippendale's first run-in with the ABC. We got arrested twice. For indecent exposure? Yes, ma'am. You might remember that other lawyer, Bruce Nahan, the guy with the raspy cigar smoker's voice, who studied for the bar at Steve Banerjee's bar. You're the lawyer there, so how'd you deal with that? We pled guilty, paid fines, hired an ABC law firm. Mm-hmm. And they, they started dealing with the ABC, and we learned what we can do and what we can't do. I called Bruce to ask if he remembered Don Gibson. Of course he did, Bruce said. He tried to get the case to go away. Not by letting the wheels of justice do their thing, but by offering Don free admission to the club for a year and a bottle of champagne. My gut feeling was settled quick. Why? Talk to me about that strategy. I'm not a lawyer. It just felt icky, you know, and it felt like it can become quicksand that we'd never get out of them. And it just didn't seem like the place to take a stand, defending our rights to a 
refuse service to anyone. It just didn't feel right. Don Gibson is not impressed. He is not the kind of guy who's going to roll over for free admission and a bottle of champagne. He knows he has a good case, and he's not in any rush. He graduates law school, goes to work as a clerk for a federal judge, and lets the slow-moving legal process unfold. Eventually, the case turns into a class action suit that includes seven other Black patrons who claim to have also been turned away from Chippendales. It was horrible in the press. How was Chippendales painted? As a place of de- that discriminates. The ABC thought it was a cause so ever, so they pushed it as far as they could. In late 1983, Don attends the first big public hearing. At that hearing, a reporter from the Los Angeles Times or the local NBC channel maybe, asked me if I had ever seen Steve Banerjee. I said, no. She goes, well, he's here at the hearing. And she pointed him out to me, and I said, oh, my goodness, I don't believe this. This was Don's first time hearing Steve's name. His lawsuit was with the business, not Steve Banerjee personally. And Don had just assumed that a guy running a nightclub that wouldn't let in black people had to be white. Well, Steve Banerjee was East Indian. And... I walked over to Steve Banerjee and I said, so you're the owner of Chippendales and you're the guy who has this policy of not letting black people into your club. And I said, I just want to tell you one thing. My grandfather is East Indian, just like you. What did he say? Oh, he just looked at me and walked away. Really? How do you understand that? Well, you know, it's, he was running a business and he thought that this was something that he needed to do to keep his business model, you know, in place. I mean, there's racism among people of color as well. So it didn't surprise me. It's just that I wanted to just convey to him a message that, you know, he has a policy in place that's, you know, affecting people just like him. We'll be right back. The guy you met at the top of this episode, Hadari Sababu, the entrepreneur, talked to me about what it was like to be the only Black dancer during the three years he worked at Chippendales in the early 80s. Hadari had a day job when he first got hired at Chippendales. He was a reporter at a Black-owned newspaper called the LA Sentinel. So he went straight from the paper, where the whole staff was Black, to Chippendales, a decidedly different environment. It was kind of a point of contention because Banerjee felt that he didn't want more than one black guy in the club. Like at, in the, the whole club the or whole, on the stage? And, and working at Chippendales at one time. out of Maybe it's like 25, 26 guys that worked there. Hodari said he asked Banerjee point blank what the deal was. Why wouldn't he hire more than one black dancer? I'm like, why is that, man? Well, you know, I, I, I got, and he stuttered. Uh, I got mostly, you know, white women, they come in here and they spend a lot of money and I don't want a lot of black guys in here, you know, it makes it look like some gang stuff or something. You know, it's like Chippendale's this classy thing. You know, we got these classy guys, we want classy girls coming in here. And What do you think classy meant to him? Uh, definitely white, definitely white, successful financially. It was all superficial, but... The problem wasn't just Steve, Hadari said. It was everywhere. He told me some of the other dancers would refuse to even stand next to him on stage. I mean, we backstage, we doing push-ups, we pumping up, and... Blah, 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 blah. I'm not standing next to him. No, man, fuck that. I ain't sitting next to him. Because it would make their tan look bad. 
Are you kidding it me? It made them look more pale if they stood next to me. And it, and it was every night. It was like, it was, they just simply didn't want to do it. It was like, oh man, he's making me look bad. Oh, he's, uh, look, he's dark. And I'm, I'm like, man, come on. There was this other time when Hodari actually did get an opportunity he thought was cool and might even lead to some other work beyond backup dancing. I did a TV show called uh, The Facts of Life. Obviously. Miss Garrett and all that. Yeah. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. The For those who don't know, The Facts of Life was a hit NBC sitcom in the 80s. I loved it. It was about a bunch of girls at an East Coast boarding school and their house mother, Mrs. Garrett. Well, they did an episode where they took Miss Garrett to Chippendales for her birthday. Yeah. We embarrassed him staring at him like that. Mrs. Garrett, that's what he's here for, to be stared at. Trust me, he didn't get this job because he's fluent in four languages. (laughs) That episode aired in November 1983. The show's casting director came to the club looking to hire three dancers, and they wanted one of them to be black. Good news for Hadari. But when they actually shot the scene, his part is pretty different from the role of the two white guys. We all had routines where we had a, you know, we we go out on the stage and at the end of their routine, they went over to Miss Garrett and gave her a kiss. Well, I wasn't allowed to touch her because I'm a black guy. Who told this you is, that? It was in the script. And it's obvious, out of three dancers, the, the two dancers that, that come on, they go to Miss Garrett, give her a kiss. In my script, I do my routine and I'm supposed to turn and go back to the backstage. I'm like, shit, I want some more airtime too. I want to go over and kiss Miss Garrett, but they wasn't having that. How did it make you feel? It didn't bother me, I guess, that much. It was no big deal. Were you ever like, fuck this? Why am I like listening because to I, this? Uh, you got to stop. Because of the money and the girls, it was decent money. I mean, you could make a thousand bucks a week in the 80s. Tips. Yeah. You know, you, you get your money and you roll on. I knew what it was all about. You get your money and you roll on. That could be Hadari's motto for those years. Whenever I asked him about the racism he experienced, he was like, yeah, yeah, of course the place was racist. The country is racist. What do you want me to say? I needed to make a living. There was this other thing I wanted to ask him, though, which might sound kind of academic. Did the women in the crowd treat him as if he was, quote-unquote, exotic? Because on the one hand, it made perfect, perverse sense that Hodari was treated worse than the other white dancers, that he didn't get picked for the calendars or as a lead dancer. That's straight-up obvious racism, white supremacy, and the legacy of the Jim Crow era. But I imagine there was something else going on, too. I sensed it when the white dancers didn't want to stand next to him, what we academics might call the exoticization of the black body. Chippendales was selling their fantasy to mostly white women, and there is no more vivid racist fantasy in U.S. history than that of the oversexed black man ravishing a white woman. Do you ever feel like being the one black guy made you like more attractive to some of these women who you like you were their favorite <laughs> act or you that you they came to see you? Of course. Tell me about that. Of course. And because because I was the only black guy, I got approached a lot by women, mostly white women because that's mostly in the clubs and they would be like, "Oh my god, oh my god, I've never been with a black guy." And that's when I started asking for a fee. A fee to the women? Absolutely, yeah. That's when I started asking for a fee. But so it was mostly... Uh, 
a fee for sex? Yeah. Actually, a woman approached me after the show and she was like, uh, look, I really, really want to go home with you. And uh, I know you guys charge. And I spent so much of my money and all I got is, and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm like, wow, what the fuck should I tell her? Uh, you know, I'm getting ready to say like 50 bucks. So she said, look, all I have is $300 left. I'm like, all right, okay, cool. I'll, I'll take that. And we go and get in her big Mercedes and take off. Hadari said at that moment, a light bulb went off and he was like, whoa, I've got something these women want. I could make some real money here. It's the law of supply and demand. It's more of them than it is of me. And from that point, and you know, I started charging more and more too. Well, I was like fifteen hundred bucks, couple thousand bucks. In like eighty-three. Eighty-three. It's a lot of money. The club's a small place, so once word gets out about Hadari's new business venture, other dancers follow his lead. Was everyone doing it? You know, once I explained it to them, and I think they these guys are so green, nobody knew. I mean, nobody even thought about that. They would ask me, man, how, why did, how much do I charge? How long do I have to stay? And, you know, I'd, I'd let them know, okay, this is how you do it. This is, you know, this is what you want, so. How'd that go over? We actually had an orgy room where they kept the costumes. And sometimes you go in there, it's like maybe 10 or 15 girls naked. It was just total debauchery. Before the show or after the show? During the show, before the show, after the show, it was just a constant barrage of women. You know, you go through and you see the ones you like, you pick, hey, you know, come backstage. It's just like, I would suspect it's probably like being in a rock band or something. Yeah, so orgy room, so you start charging, right? So I did. Tell me about it. So one night, this is how it all blew up on me. One night, I'm at the club. I'm tired, I wanna go home. I just wanna get my bag and just get the hell out of there. So I'm leaving the club. This girl's tugging on me. She's, oh my God, please, please, please. I want you to come home with me. I'm like, ma'am, I'm flattered, but look, I don't want to go. And Hadari's finally like, okay, fine. Give me 1,500 bucks. I'm not going to spend the night. And the woman's like, all right, great, let's go. So we go out, I'm on my motorcycle. And she's with like six of her homegirls. We go to some big ass mansion out in Encino. We go in. So we proceed. We're in the living room, me and the girl. All her friends are, they're just like, they're all like just standing there watching. So I'm like, look, if your friends are gonna watch, I'm gonna charge them too. Entrepreneurial. (laughs) Entrepreneurial as ever. But they say fine and leave. When Hadari finishes, he tells the woman he's ready to get paid. So the girl tells me, I'm not giving you $1,500 for that. So of course I'm pissed off and I, you know, I'm kind of breaking stuff in the house and going through all these bullshit. And, and finally they come up, all the friends come up and they, I think they scrape up maybe five, 600 bucks. I take that and leave. The next day I go to work, the police are there waiting for me. So Banerjee's like, oh, I got the police over here. They want to talk to you. So I go in, I'm talking to the police officer. He said, look, we always suspected that you guys did that, but now we know. And they just thought it was the they just thought it was the funniest thing. It, the police. The police. They're not like they're not looking at me like oh, like yeah. this guy's some super criminal. They're like, shit, we wish we could do it too. We wish we could charge women to have sex with us too. That would be great. So they kind of, you know, they kind of laughed it off. 
The cops do not care, but Banerjee suspends Hadari from work anyway for 30 days. And while it's basically a slap on the wrist, Hadari is pissed that Banerjee punishes him at all. He was like, well, I got to do something because it's making us look bad. You know, the police are up here and all this shit. So I was the first, probably the only guy that ever was formally at least interviewed for uh, prostitution. It does seem a little arbitrary that Steve, of all people, a guy who's always playing fast and loose with the law, would come down on Hadari at all for making some money on the side. On the other hand, when you adopt Banerjee's view of the world, which isn't so much one of right versus wrong as it is, how do I eliminate this thing that's causing me trouble now? Then it all starts to make perfect sense. That's definitely the way to understand what happens next in the case of Don Gibson, the law student who got turned away at the door of Chippendales. And why Gibson's case went from a struggle with the local liquor board to something much more serious. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Don Gibson is a man of principle. He's the guy who was willing to get beat up in seventh grade to make a point about cheating on a French test, remember? Yeah, he is still very much that guy. A few months after that first public hearing, Don, who's still clerking for a federal judge, is at the U.S. District Courthouse when his office phone rings. He answers, and the voice on the other end asks, is this the guy who's suing Chippendales? I said, yes. He said, well, I have something that you need to see. And I was curious. He said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, I have to show you in person. So Don sets a time for the guy to meet him at his apartment. I know, it seemed a little risky to me too, and a little uncharacteristic of Don, who's a very deliberate, cautious guy. But that's the plan. I arranged to have my roommates there in case anything, you know, went south, as they say. And at the designated time, a guy shows up and hands Don his business card. It says, Expo Rent-A-Car. Ask for Ryan. And then he hands Don a notebook. That he said was left in the trunk of a car that was rented by someone who was working for Chippendales. And I looked at the notebook and it had my name, my address, my telephone number, and it had a log, a daily log of purported activities that I was conducting. Oh my God. Gibson goes to AMPM Mini Market, Honda Accord, license plate XXX, white male, goes to Gibson's apartment. And I just, at that point, I went off the handle. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. The notebook was a private investigator's log. Someone had been tracking Don's movements for 10 days straight. Where he went, when he had food delivered, who he talked to, when he went to bed at night. And look at this, he has a drawing of the street. Don seems mystified all over again as he showed us the notebook and flipped through its pages. He's kept it all these years. Like, how could someone have been following me? You know, military or police experience because they're keeping it in 24-hour increments. He contacted a lawyer right away, his friend Thomas Hunt, and brought the notebook to Hunt's office. 
Hunt died back in 2014, but we did get to talk to his son, William, who that summer was a surfer kid who just wanted to go to the beach, but instead was stuck in his dad's office making copies and organizing files. It was terrible for the tan. So many years later, though, and William remembers Don's case perfectly. His dad didn't take on many cases that were all that dramatic after all. But this one, William told my producer, Christine, that he remembers feeling like he was watching an action movie play out before his very eyes. One of the things that I vividly remember because I was there for the meeting is Don tells my dad he's being followed and that he thinks it's Chippendales. And my dad says, you're being paranoid. Stop it. You're crazy. And he goes, no, I'm being followed. What'd you think? I I believe Don. I'm a kid. I'm going with, oh, my God, Don's being followed. So they call the sheriff, who says there's nothing they can do. There's nothing in the PI's notebook that suggests any imminent threat to Don's safety. I go, you've got to be kidding me. Okay. All righty. Well, now I'm walking around looking over my shoulder everywhere I go. It turned out it was absolutely 100% true. He was being followed. William Hunt, by the way, became a lawyer, too. Just like Don, just like his dad. A few months go by, and Don finally shakes the feeling that he's being followed all the time. He stops feeling paranoid every time he leaves the house and settles back into his work. And then he gets another call. And this is from a gentleman who was a dancer at Chippendales. And he called me to tell me that he has some developments regarding Chippendales that's really concerning him, that he wanted to make me aware of. And we need to talk right away. He wants to meet. And his name was Hadari. Don told this story over the phone the first time we talked with him. And I gotta say, it blew my mind when I first heard it, and it still blows my mind now. First, there's just the fact that what Hadari is about to tell Don, to my knowledge, it's never been reported before. And it was the first example I heard of Banerjee going this far. But also, it's Hadari, Mr. I take my money and roll on. He's the one who called Don. And he says, I need to talk to you because there's some shit about to go down that I don't want to be involved with. And I go, what are you talking about, man? He says, they've been following you, and Banerjee is so pissed off at you because of what you're doing and what trouble you're causing his business, they have a hit out on you. I go, are you, are you fucking kidding me? He says, yes, they have a hit out on you. Oh, my God. So again, Don immediately tells his lawyer, Thomas Hunt, about the call, and they ask Hadari to give a statement under oath. With a court reporter present, they meet in Tom's office in downtown L.A. on a Saturday morning. When you walked into Hunt's office and Hadari rolls in, how did he strike you? Like, what was he wearing? What kind of figure did he cut? Well, he was a, you know, very well-built, muscular, athletic man. He was, you know, handsome man, if you would, you know, describe him as that. And he was casually dressed. And Hadari proceeds to tell the following story, that the owner of Chippendales... Steve Banerjee had hired a woman who was supposed to meet me and he had paid her $5,000 to get into a compromising situation with me and plant drugs on me. Whoa. Problem was, Don didn't really go out to any bars or clubs where a woman could pick him up and plant drugs on him. Because I was not going to these places, that whole plan was falling apart and he was getting really upset because this lawsuit and this complaint was causing him anguish in his business and was threatening his liquor license. And he decided to go to the next step, which was to put out a contract on me. Oh, my God. Hodari's telling you all this in the deposition yes. with Thomas Hunt. Yes. Banerjee took out a hit on Don. 
holy shit. And Hadari knew about it. And according to Don, Hadari couldn't live with himself if Banerjee went through with it. I said, dude, look, be very careful. Just be careful because Banerjee is talking about, uh, you know, doing, bringing some harm to you. You know, you just, you just got to watch your back. When he overheard, you know, this plot, um, that was one of the things that, you know, really triggered, you know, his reaction. So we took that as a statement just so that we had the evidence. So when we met with Nahan, we showed him that stuff and he knew at that point they needed to reach a settlement with us. Bruce Nahan says he was not aware of the murder for hire plot. And Hadari says he doesn't remember talking to a court reporter. He also told me that he was on a lot of drugs back then and reminded me that this all happened over 30 years ago. And we've never seen the deposition. It was never entered as evidence because after meeting with Don and his lawyer, Bruce settled right away. Banerjee ended up paying out $10,000 to Don, about 25 grand in today's dollars. Another 85,000 would be divided among other black patrons who'd been discriminated against too. As part of the settlement, Banerjee promised to stop denying entry to black customers. He said he would ensure that a quarter of all new employees would be black. And he agreed to do at least $500,000 in business with black merchants each year. Those were the things that were really important to me. You know, I did not get into this for the money or any kind of money. I just wanted to, you know, have, you know, a fair, judicially responsible result, you know, be in place. I don't think any of that ever happened. Bruce Nahan again. Did you hire more black people? Did you change the door policy? I, 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 I would suspect it didn't change one iota, but I don't remember. It's all kind of a letdown, isn't it? Don goes through the official channels to seek justice, and then he has to deal with having his life threatened, only for Chippendales to never even follow through on its settlement promise to be more equitable. I wish this was the moment I got to tell you about a dramatic court battle that followed, or that I got to say, and this is the moment everything changed for the better. But I can't, because it didn't play out that way. So instead, I want to focus on a different kind of win. A win where one man calls up another man and ends up saving his life. What would you say to Hadari if you ran into him today? I would say, you know, thank you for being brave. So you'd think that this would be the place to end the story, wouldn't you? Hadari chooses right over wrong, defies Banerjee, and Don Gibson ends up okay. Maybe they even stay friends. It's not quite that simple, though. When I sat down with Hadari in late 2019 in the office slash pizza parlor at Hollywood and Vine, Hadari admitted to me that part of his strategy throughout this whole period was to constantly play both sides. And on that day we talked, he seemed to really want to get it all off his chest. This is what I feel bad about to this day, the Tell shit me. that I did. We came, we concocted this story that the black guys who came to the door had guns. He bought witnesses. And that's the only way they can, they can justify denying them entrance in the club. We came up with people, hey, I'll give you $100, say you're in the parking lot. You saw those guys get out. They had bulges in their pocket, blah, blah, blah. In case you missed that, they paid witnesses to say that they saw black patrons carrying guns, which is why they weren't letting black people in. Hadari went out and found those people to make those false claims. That was one strategy. The other was kind of the opposite, to pay people to testify how welcoming Banerjee was to black people when they showed up at the club. So we had to round up a whole bus full of black people 
to say they had been to Chippendales and they had a great time and they weren't discriminated. Where did you find them all? Like how I you paid them it? all. It's just random people off the street, black people that I knew, and and we had a budget, and we gave them like a hundred bucks a piece, and we actually filled up a bus and took them to court on a designated day. They all sat out there. When Hadari told me that, I was like, wait, what? You were helping Steve do all this stuff? You were the one paying black people to testify on Steve's behalf so he could fight off a discrimination suit and uphold his racist policies? What? But also, I have no doubt that you are the guy who tipped off Don. You know, it's one thing to help him win the case. It's another thing to to stand by and watch him, like, actually bring harm to another black guy and i'm a black guy so that's when i reached out you know and told him what i what i suspected what was going to happen i had you know some cognitive dissonance about really trying to help Banerjee on a bogus case In 1984, the LA Times reported that Chippendale's merchandise brought in $12 million a year. Most of that was in calendar sales. Now they've put out a gift item said to be selling like hotcakes. It's a calendar, beefcake instead of cheesecake for the ladies of the 80s. The calendars were yet one more place where Hadari got shut out. I couldn't get in the calendar, the Chippendale calendar, which was the hugest calendar in the world. Yeah. Because uh, his thinking was, well, I, I can't sell calendars down south if for uh, 30 days they got some black guy up on the wall. Some white woman has uh, some black guy on the wall. I can't put black guys in my calendar. So I did everything else. I did the, you know, I did the greeting cards. I did the uh, air fresheners. I did that. But I couldn't do the calendar. But so many girls would come up. It's like, oh, my God, why aren't you in the calendar? What the hell are they doing? Hadari had been watching Banerjee run the place for a while. And he figured, first of all, this is bullshit. I'm never going to get a chance here. And also, I've been paying attention. I know enough to do this on my own. I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Chippendale's resources and I'm going to start my own calendar. It's going to be all black guys. Not white guys, it's going to be all black guys. What was it called? Black gold. So I'm using his phone, I'm using his computers. It's almost like I'm trying to set up competition against him. He didn't feel guilty, Hodari said, because Steve had been stiffing him in plenty of other ways, too. Even when he was included in something, like this one photo shoot they did for an air freshener, Banerjee paid him half of what he paid the white dancers. The other white guys, they all got paid. They got paid, you know, they got paid like 15, 1600. I get 800 bucks. So Hadari says, screw it, and goes ahead and makes his own calendar. Black gold. And when Banerjee finds out, he loses his shit. What are you doing? You're trying to rip me off? Who do you think you are? He busted me trying to start my own business. But I was just being, he taught me how to do this. And it's like, okay, I'm just, I'm taking what you taught me. And it's not really, it's not going to hurt you. I'm doing a black calendar. But then when he, you know, he didn't pay me for the photo shoot, I just went in the office and we got into an argument and I kept, I'm like, dude, I need my money. I need my money. And I socked him. And uh, he started crying. And I'm like, I didn't even expect, he just, he just stood there and he was crying. Tears coming out of his eyes. And he's like, 
I, I love you like a fucking son. And that's what you do. Get the fuck out of here. I'll never done ever come around anymore. And I'm like, oh shit. And I punched him and he and he wrote me out a check for the money while he's crying. And uh and he was it was like he was he he was more hurt yeah. than physically hurt. He was emotionally hurt that I would I would uh I would take it to that level. I felt really bad after that and that was kind of like my last my last day at Chippendale. I kept waiting for the moment when Hadari was going to be like, fuck that guy. He's a crook and a racist and he wanted to kill people. I was lucky to get out of there alive. But it never came. Instead, the thing Hadari seemed to want to communicate most is that nothing's as simple as you think it is. Yeah, it was painful to work at a place that wouldn't hire more black people or even let them in the door. But he needed the money and he was young and it was LA in the 80s. It was cool to be part of something, especially something like that. But also, Banerjee, for every opportunity he denied Hadari. There's this way Hadari still, to this day, sees Banerjee as a kind of mentor. Like he wouldn't be sitting there with me, taking a break from the successful business he's run for a decade, if Steve hadn't seen something in him. And I think Banerjee recognized that in me, is that, you know, okay, you know, I would rather own the place than be the, the talent. Yeah. Because when you own a place, you make the most money and you can call the shots. That's why I started my own calendar. That's why I started my yeah. own club. And and I learned all that from him. Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, the business part I learned from him. And and, and to this day, I still use... Uh, Hadari trailed off and looked around the pizza place, searching for something he wanted to say, something he thought I should understand. He was wearing dark sunglasses during our whole interview, but when he started to talk again, I could tell he was crying. I know, it's... it's crazy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. But... I know, it's a lot to talk about. <laughs> All right. But to this day, I use stuff that I, <laughs> I learned from Banerjee. Yeah. You know, so, anyway. Yeah. That's you, crazy. You think of him often? No. Just learn from uh, watching a person, you know, watch how they make moves and, you know, how they talk and, you know, when you negotiate what to say and how to bounce things off of other people. And, you know, yeah, you, you learn that. And I don't even know why I got emotional talking about Banerjee. It's a big deal. I'm but yeah, it's crazy because, and I'm doing well. I, and I did well when I was when I was a drug dealer. I did well. I was probably one of the best. And yeah. I made a lot of money. I made tons of money. And uh, and I probably learned shit that I applied to that business from that guy. I guess you realize in life, and then, you know, I'm 63 now. Shit, you realize in life that you don't you don't get to a place by yourself. You get there because it's a lot of people that helped you. And uh, I don't know, he was just, he was just one of the ones that helped me, you know, and uh, he, didn't, he didn't have to do that, but he did. So, I don't know, it's crazy. Hadari needed to get back to work. We thanked him for taking the time to talk with us. 
He started to head out and then stopped, like there was something he was still turning over in his head, trying to make sense of. He told me he was embarrassed for crying. Then he apologized for it. I feel so bad for crying, he said. For the record, I don't think he should be. This is heavy stuff. But one of the guys behind the counter noticed he was crying and started to give him a little grief about it. And then he finally turned around and walked out. There were a couple more tours that afternoon, and he took his spot underneath the umbrella and started selling. So Banerjee's alleged plot to have Don Gibson murdered was foiled. But it didn't seem to deter him from thinking that hiring hitmen was the solution to his problems. It got to the point where he was just, he was going crazy and he had so much money. If it was up to him, he probably would have had maybe 30 murders under his belt. Because at some point in time, he felt that murder would solve the problem. It's like less killing. You know, uh, the, the landscape guy fucked up his flowers. Let's kill him. Next time, the bigger Chippendales gets, the more paranoid Steve becomes until everything and everyone begins to look like a threat. If you crossed him, if you ever said something about the name Chippendales not being his or somebody competing against it, then you would see this tiger come out of this little lambskin and he would just turn into a bear and get really, really angry. Welcome to Your Fantasy is a production of Pineapple Street Studios in association with Gimlet. It's hosted by me, Natalia Petrozella. Our senior producer is Eleanor Kagan. Our producer is Christine Driscoll, and our associate producer is Erin Kelly. Nicole Hammer and Neil J. Young are consulting producers. Our editors are Joel Lovell and Maddie Spronkheiser. It was mixed by Hannes Brown and fact-checked by Ben Phelan. Additional consulting from Ahmed Ali Akbar. This show features original music by Dow and Anthony, and thanks to our music supervisor, Jasmine Flott. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. From Gimlet, our executive producer is Lydia Polgreen, and our editor is Colin Campbell. We've got a Spotify playlist with tons of music from the original show, so you can create the club experience for yourself in the comfort of your own home. You can find the link in the show notes. For behind-the-scenes footage, photos, clips, and more, check out our Instagram account, Chippendales Revealed. That's the handle, Chippendales Revealed. Did you ever go to Chippendales? We want to hear about it. Leave us a short voicemail, 30 seconds to a minute tops, at 323-475-9424. And we might play it on a future episode. That's 323-475-9424. This is a Spotify original podcast.